Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Critical Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. This is our Christmas 2017 episode <laughs> and so I wanted to say Merry Christmas, um, Merry Kwanzaa, <laughs> Happy Holidays, uh, Happy Hanukkah, uh, Feliz Navidad, may your Yule log ever be in your favor. <laughs> and uh, those are pretty much all the season's greetings I know. I'm sure there's thousands more. But all in all, um, me here wishes you out there the best of times for Christmas and uh, for New Year's and for this entire holiday season and everything that it basically symbolizes, which is peace on earth, goodwill to man, and uh, eating and drinking and much merriment. So in the spirit of all of those things, uh, I hope that you guys are having a, a great time today. We got some uh, questions to answer. This is my Christmas time here, uh, and I decided to go equal opportunity <laughs> geekdom with, uh, with Star Wars and Star Trek as well. So uh, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. El Buncio. At Scientology International events, it often seems like individual org growth is misrepresented, i.e. Org A has doubled the number of clears made, when in reality, they may have increased from one to two clears made. How do the staff react when they know the truth and can see the facts are being spun in the best possible way? Do you think it leads them to question anything else? Well, it's funny you mention that because the way you give the numbers there from one to two and the org says or they stay on stage that uh, we, we doubled the number of clears. That's, that's kind of exactly how they do their... Uh, propaganda in the best of terms. <laughs> like, I mean, sometimes they just make stuff up. They just are literally pulling numbers out of wherever. Um, but they'll try to put the best possible spin on it, and that is one way that they will do it, because technically speaking, they did double the number of clears, but going from one to two in a week or a time or given time period is pretty ridiculous. Um, I would say that Scientologists react to that in different ways um, because I, for example, had my eyes opened by seeing in the real world that what was being talked about on stage with these expansion statistics was visibly not true. And in these ideal orgs, after they do, you know, millions of dollars in fundraising, years of growing these things and trying to, you know, get into the new building, getting the building, getting it renovated, getting it opened, and then nothing changes. Nothing changes. Then they really start seeing that it's all been a bunch of hype and, um, you know, much sound and fury <laughs> without much in the way of any returns. Uh, and that's, that's, that's when Scientologists, I think, open their eyes more so than in earlier stages where they can kind of, you know, buy into the idea that things are great somewhere else and they're not great where we are. But if we just do the same thing that those guys did over in those other places, we'll have all those rewards too. And it never works out because the truth is that those guys over there aren't getting any of those rewards. It's just a bunch of hype and exaggeration as, as we've gone over. Um, so, so I think, the, I think that uh, some people wake up seeing that. I think some people who are in those cult bubble worlds uh, of any stripe, you know, Scientology or, you know, JWs or whoever, 
um, those kind of of exaggerations right you know create this like that the perception difference they go well yeah but wait a minute it's not really like that here and maybe for a while they can go well yeah they'll rationalize it sure but you know we're different for some reason or uh, maybe I don't have all the information maybe there's more things that the dear leader knows that I don't know that indicates that maybe things are happening that are better than what I know or what I think I know or what I see right uh, or they just don't you know they just kind of uh, gloss over it they really don't think about it too much and I think that tends to be more how things go I think that in other words you know, somebody goes to one of these events and they see things that are, you know, either said about their own org or about other orgs and they go, well, yeah, that's probably not true. But they want to believe so bad in the dream of it, in the expansion of Scientology overall, that they're willing, that they just suspend their disbelief. It's like watching a movie, kind of. They just go, woo, yeah, because they get this dopamine rush or they get the, you know, they get the good feelings and the good sensation of it. And they just go with it, you know, and then they go home and they kind of forget about it and they just get on with things. Uh, and they don't, you know, they just don't think about it too much. Uh, because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect them directly. Like, like the good news of, uh, you know, the attitude of a Scientologist is that they are there first and foremost to get themselves up the bridge. They're not really... The, the, their, their top priority as a public Scientologist who's paying their money and doing their services is not to see that the entire world gets Scientology. Their first priority is that they get their own. They get theirs. And as long as they're getting theirs, you know, the, the exaggerations of the organization, the exaggerations or lies or propaganda of David Miscavige, you know, maybe some of them also just go, yeah, He's, he's lying. It's propaganda. I see right through it. But I'm still getting the goods. So whatever. I understand that he needs to do that to placate people or give people hope or, you know, something like that. I mean, it could even, you know, you could even get that end of the spectrum where people just flat out acknowledge, yeah, it's just BS. But I don't care because I feel great. You know, and that's as much thought as they put into Scientology. And that, um, you know, is unfortunate because they, you know, are, are taught in Scientology that they should be seeking to live with the truth. That's one of the points of the way to happiness. But, yeah, you know, so that's, that's what I can say about that. Dennis Peterson. When you add the structure of Scientology with a single person on the top who must be obeyed at all times, the camps with barbed wire and guards, and the gigantic arrogance that a lot of Scientologists feel towards non-Scientologists, would you say that there is an element of Nazism and or fascism in Scientology? Hey, this was a good opportunity for me to bust out something I haven't used in a long time. I actually produced this glossary when I was in the Church of Scientology for the course room uh, for the Sea Org guys. Uh, at the Central Training Organization in Los Angeles. And I, I made this graphic and produced this, this uh, little, you know, uh, 
booklet here, and it has all the different isms defined in it. And it was uh, for use, like I said, in the course rooms, right? And it covers all these different things. And I, um, I put it together and, and had a lot of fun typesetting this whole thing. It's one of the first things I ever made as far as a printed piece of work other than uh, org magazines. Anyway, and in it is, is a whole section on fascism. So let's, uh, let's just take a look at this for those out there who uh, might wonder what this word actually means. Fascism is a form of government that attempts to bring a country into one disciplined force under an all-powerful leader. This leader promises to overcome all obstacles to create a glorious future for the country. The people are forced to follow the leader without question, and he is respected almost as if he were godlike. Such obedience is demanded, and violence and force are used to overcome enemies and obtain compliance. In fascism, there is the belief that their country is superior to all others, and that the people of that country are a more intelligent, stronger, and more perfect race of people. In Germany in the 30s and 40s, the fascist movement was called Nazism. So, could you tell the difference between <laughs> Nazism and Scientology when I was, while I was reading that definition? Uh, I couldn't. <laughs> I mean, other than the fact that this was referring to running a country rather than a religious sect or group or cult, uh, you know, if Scientology had its way, then that is how things would be and how things would be run. And uh, the, you know, while we don't have a lot of instances of overt violence being committed against public Scientologists, we do see that at the upper levels. And what you see happen at the upper levels of Scientology always filters down and rolls down to the staff and then the public levels. Uh, and there's really no reason to think that the, the, the violence and abuses and civil and human rights abuses that occur in the Sea Org wouldn't eventually filter down to the public the, through the staff, which, is, which has already happened many times, and down to the public level. So force, uh, you know, table banging, yelling, screaming, this sort of thing occurs as, you know, as a routine action uh, at, at all levels of Scientology. So, um, so it's not an exaggeration to talk about, you know, the use of force or violence in Scientology in order to accomplish its ends. And the funny thing is to me in reading that and, you know, having put that together, it never occurred to me when I was in Scientology while I was typing out fascism there and typesetting that, that I was in a fascist system. It is so scary, our capacity to be able to justify or rationalize our beliefs and ideas and the ways that we go about enforcing those beliefs and ideas. Uh, and when we are convinced that we're on the side of good and right, anything is, is justifiable or rational, you know, be able to be rationalized. Anything. Uh, because I made that while I was in a fascist system. And it never even dawned on me that I was in a fascist system. Uh, I don't know what that says about me. I don't know what that says about people in general or our, our ability to do that. Um, but it, it, it's kind of terrifying as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, but it is what it is. And yes, I do believe that uh, I would answer this question very much in the affirmative that Scientology is a, uh, if you were going to take it 
and make it into a political system, uh, it would be a fascist state. And, and as we've said many times, it would be comparable to how North Korea is run. That would be a good model of how a Scientology country would look. Gemma Masferrer. Was Hubbard a good auditor? It seems like he was always doing conferences, but not auditing his followers. This is a great question. I am so glad you asked me this question because it brought to mind so much stuff that I've not really talked about much. And that is that Hubbard was not a good auditor. But here's the thing. Uh, okay, Hubbard created Dianetics and it was assumed right from the get-go that he was the master at doing Dianetic auditing and he was lecturing all right right from the get-go in 1950 he was running around the country lecturing about his latest discoveries and techniques with Dianetics and showing people how to do it and there were some sample auditing demonstrations that Hubbard would do over the years uh, this was this was not few and far between there's quite a few of them but the funny thing is, if you go back over these, and I did when I was in Scientology, you talk about you know, the brainwashed mindset of, of not engaging in critical thinking, I observed many instances uh, in, in the transcripts of Hubbard's auditing sessions or in the tape recordings of the demonstrations that Hubbard did that I, I, I saw Hubbard violating his own rules over and over and over again. And you just kind of give him a pass because I would think to myself, well, he must know things I don't know. His presence is so great as an auditor. He can get away with these things. Oh, well, you know, it's just kind of the natural flow of the conversation. And so he's not being mechanical or rote in how he's doing his auditing procedure, right? Or, well, he's doing research all the time, so maybe when he's doing research on things and showing, you know, how auditing, how he audits, then maybe he's experimenting with things, right? I mean, I came up with all kinds of really stupid ideas to try to make sense of why it would be that Hubbard would not acknowledge the person who he was auditing when it's a very firm rule in Scientology that every time the person gives an answer to a question, the auditor is supposed to acknowledge the preclear, right? He's supposed to say thank you or good or I'm, I thank you, you know, I'm, uh, thanks for telling me that or I got it or something to indicate to the preclear that, that the auditor heard what he said. And there were tons of times Hubbard didn't acknowledge it at all. He just kept going. Or he would um, tell the preclear what was happening on the e-meter. Just flat out, oh yeah, we got this little registration here, got this little tick tick here, got this little, oh, your needle's dirty right now. And this was after Hubbard had written a bulletin specifically stating you never, ever, ever tell the preclear what the meter is doing. Ever. Right? You just don't do that because it draws the preclear's attention to the meter when the preclear's attention is supposed to be on himself and on his case, on, on, on his uh, past experiences. That's where the preclear's attention is supposed to be at, not on what the meter's doing. The meter's supposed to be an almost invisible tool that the auditor is using in the course of the auditing session in order to guide the session, uh, but not guide the preclear's attention to what the meter's doing, right? Now, of course, it, I, what I'm, what I'm giving you here is a near ideal state. Uh, the preclear's attention is on the meter all the time uh, for all kinds of reasons, but 
Um, but Hubbard would specifically draw the preclear's attention to it, and that's just a big no-no, right? Um, so I used to wonder about that when I was in Scientology. I used to like listen to those things, and I used to just go, God, I guess I got a long way to go to figure out how to audit like Ron because he just does things that I just don't think you're really supposed to be doing in, in a session. I would get, you know, and, and it became almost, a, you know, after I started kind of thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it, you know, you think you chew on something like that long enough and you have to say something to somebody. And so I would. I would drop little comments here and there and sort of, you know, float these little things out there, see if people would respond to them. And, and sometimes people did. They'd just go, huh, you know. Uh, and sometimes they'd just go, huh, okay, well, whatever. And just, br it just pff, pff, you know, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah, it's Ron. He's violating the rules of auditing. But <laughs> who cares? You know, that was that was pretty much how the the, the, the reception I would get in, in bringing this up to people. So I didn't make I kind of went, OK, well, this isn't going to get any any legs and I'm just I'm not going to run with this. Uh, I'm just going to acknowledge that that Ron uh, fudged <laughs> and I'm going to move on. And, you know, it was just another little chink in the, you know, in the in the wall uh, of of the beliefs, you know, that that led me to that. Um, but I never got a, I never really brought this up before. Nobody's, uh, I don't, I don't recall ever talking about this. So thanks very much, Gemma, for that question. I think this was a, an interesting point to bring up. Riley222. Given all that we know about Hubbard's teachings regarding LGBT on one hand, and given the fact that there are LGBT people in Scientology, or were, such as Steve Mango, my question is, how do they get treated in the day-to-day -day life? As public staff or Sea Org, considering that their sexuality is known in the church and excluding PR grounds. Do they nowadays get treated as Class B citizens? Are they being constantly suspected as being off the rails, more so than heterosexuals? Oh yeah, they're definitely treated as second-class citizens in Scientology. Um, now, first off, I want to clarify that no homosexual person, no overtly, blatantly, openly homosexual person would ever be allowed in the Sea Org. Period. They just would say he's unqualified. They wouldn't even necessarily tell him why he was unqualified. They just would not let him in. That's just a, that's just a given. No homosexuality, period. Uh, staff, very, very controversial. When I was in management, we had it come up a couple times that homosexual people had um, uh, signed up to be staff members, wanted to, you know, I'd gotten into Scientology at a lower level, liked what they saw, wanted to work for the organization, and uh, almost routinely were just booted off, right, for, for one reason or another. Generally, it comes under the uh, policy, now that I'm thinking about it, there's a policy letter where Hubbard uh, lists qualifications for being on staff, and one of the qualifications is a very open to interpretation, broad, wide, statement of qualification, which is something like um, the person does not have out points in their lifestyle which would, you know, distract from being on staff or would somehow, you know, are, are, are out pointy. The person is out pointy. Uh, you know, this is what they might say. And of course, Scientology is going to consider any LGBT behavior to be out pointy. Right? They're going to think, oh, no, that's an outpoint. There's something wrong with that because uh, of what Hubbard says in his, in his books about it. Right? This isn't even a matter of policy. It's a matter of tech. 
It's the technology of Scientology which states that these people are mentally unsound and unstable and not to be trusted. So, you know, people will, you know, anybody, so, so for the, at the public level now, if you come in and you're paying for services and doing your classes, you'll get varying reactions. And uh, you'll get some people who will accept you uh, as an LGBT person and they don't really have anything on it. They don't care. And there are other people, probably long older timer types, who are going to give the stink eye and are going to not trust uh, that person. They're not going to want to extend them a lot of courtesy or helpfulness, and they'll just be kind of abrupt and rude with them. And this is this is based on reports I've gotten out of the church uh, recently about how uh, LGBT are treated. So that's what I can say about that. And. Uh, and it's, um, you know, they're always going to want to change you. If you go into Scientology as an LGBT, uh, Scientology is not going to be totally happy with you until they have changed you. And that really, I mean, bottom line, abuses are no, you know, stink eye or no, that is a fundamental truth of Scientology. And, uh, and that's, you know, and, that, and, and so that's how that's going to roll out for you. I heart Sydney. You say David Miscavige is not after Scientology expansion and is after money, but it doesn't strike me as someone with an overly luxurious life, at least not compared to an average A-list movie star. He doesn't have mansions all around the world. He invests his money in new orgs. Are those technically his own buildings? So how does he personally gain from having all that money instead of working towards expansion? He doesn't even have children. What's the point for him to want to have all that money if he's not really using it for himself? Or is his life more luxurious than it seems and he is actually hanging out by the pool with a dozen girls sipping champagne and eating caviar all day? All right, well, a few things on this. Uh, one, I don't think that uh, an A-list celebrity is defined as somebody who hangs around at a pool with a dozen women drinking champagne and eating caviar all day. That kind of stuff gets boring really fast. We know from firsthand eyewitness experiences of people who have been in David Miscavige's inner circle that he does not want for anything. Any whim that the man has as to what he might desire, he gets. Uh, and that is, you know, that is uh, personally profiting from the monies of Scientology, but there's lots of ways around, uh, you know, being able to spend money so that he personally benefits without it you know, coming out as this big tax issue. Uh, you know, bonuses in his pay, other people gifting him things, uh, you know, stuff like that, right? So he has whatever cars he wants. He does have residences all over the world. Uh, whether they're mansions or not, I couldn't say, but I do know that he's got uh, very, very nice apartments uh, in Los Angeles, obviously in Hemet and in Clearwater, but also in England and I believe in Paris and, and other places. Um, and he can, you know, the guy can live wherever he wants in whatever style he wants to live in. He has enough money that he doesn't have to worry about how much things cost. He's one of those people who is at an income level or bracket where he simply points to things and says, I want that, and then it, it appears in his life. So that's the lifestyle that David Miscavige leads. That's the lifestyle that people at that level lead. Um, and, you know, so counting his millions or his billions isn't really his thing. His thing is power. 
And we've known this for a very long time, and I've talked about this at length, so I'm, I'm a little surprised at this question, actually, because we know that David Miscavige is not solely motivated by money. Money is a tool. It's a means to an end for David Miscavige. It's not the goal. For him, it's about power. And money equals safety and security and gives him the confidence to, to feel that he can wield his power in an abusive fashion and not suffer any consequences for doing so. That's what money gives him. And the more money you have, the more sure you can be of having layers of protection between you and the law. And he has a lot of layers that exist because of the money that he has. So the idea that you know his money has to equal an extravagant lifestyle where he is you know, catered to his every whim and somebody is standing there to, you know, wipe his mouth and somebody else is standing there to feed him. That's not, that's, that's not his style. That's not how he is. He's an energetic, athletic, go-getter type. Uh, at least that's the persona that he presents. And um, in fact, I, uh, the, his, the, the way his personality has been described behind closed doors is kind of like Ben Stiller's character in Dodgeball. You know, he's kind of... <laughs> You know, sort of, you know, always, always on edge, always, you know, saying things that are a little weird, you know, a little off. Um, so that's how I understand him to be, you know, in private. But, um, but you know, when you, when you get to, another thing I'll say about this, this business about the money that he has is there's a, you know, why, do, why would Bill Gates continue to try to keep amassing money or, um, why did Steve Jobs keep doing that? Or why do, you know, these multimillionaires, uh, you know, billionaires who have uh, Saudi princes, you know, I mean, anybody around the world, why do people keep accumulating money past the point where their personal security and safety and lifestyle can be maintained indefinitely? Why do they have to keep getting it, right? Um, because it becomes a manic sort of thing for them. There's just never enough. And, uh, and I, I can't speak to that mindset because I don't understand it at all. Uh, but it exists, it clearly exists, and it's there, right? And as far as the, the power thing, what I mean by that in terms of David Miscavige is power over others, the ability to dominate and control other people's lives and uh, the adulation that he receives from his followers, right? Those are the things that motivate him. And, uh, and so, you know, like I said, the money is just a means to the end of, of, of accomplishing that. And, uh, and that's why you would think that he would be more interested in Scientology expansion so as to secure more followers. But that just, I, you know, I, I've, I've stated my reasons before as to why I believe that he's not interested in getting more members into Scientology because I believe that he thinks that with what he's got right now, he's set and he's happy with what he's got. Um, and he doesn't do the things that you would do in order to get more members. And, uh, so it's, so it, you know, maybe, maybe he does want more members. Maybe Miscavige does want Scientology to expand so that he can gain more power and more money. And maybe he just doesn't know how to go about it. Maybe he's so stupid as an administrator, an executive overseeing, you know, this, the, his, his domain of Scientology. Maybe he just doesn't have a clue how to bring new people in. And so he just, out of ignorance or out of some, you know, weird other thing, some kind of conceit or something, he doesn't do the things that 
you would do in order to get Scientology expanding. But regardless of his motives, right, which I, I can only guess at, uh, the, tr the, the, the objective, observable truth is he ain't expanding Scientology and he's not doing the things that you would do in order to expand Scientology. And that's really my bottom line on that. So I hope that makes it more clear what I'm talking about. Okay, it is time for Flash Answers. Mr. Marathon 1989. Has anyone shown up at the gold base or flag claiming to be the reincarnation of LRH? Do people in Scientology ever ask about it? Nope and nope. Not, not that I've ever heard of. There are people who will say that they have talked to LRH, that they have gotten messages from LRH of a spiritual nature, or they're in telepathic communication with him, and such people are almost routinely shown the door as quickly as possible because they're labeled as psychotic by Scientology. Which is very funny because you would think that if Scientology beliefs were true and that there was an afterlife and there were people in touch with each other spiritually, that such a thing would be a matter of course. I mean, if David Miscavige came out one day and said that L. Ron Hubbard contacted me and told me blah, 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 Scientologists would probably believe him. So it's kind of an interesting uh, conundrum there. Stage Right Productions, Oklahoma. Why blue? Why did they paint that huge building blue and not some other color? Well, I don't know. Probably because Hubbard thought that it would stick out like a sore thumb in the middle of Hollywood and therefore attract attention. Hubbard was really big on attracting attention to Scientology and painting all of the Cedars Lebanon complex blue definitely accomplished that. Beth Murphy, really enjoying your podcast. Are you thinking the Twitter poster Alonzo, who pens Alonzo's blog, is really a ghost blog for Marty? It's almost too obvious to be true. Curious about your thoughts. No, Alonzo is not a ghostwriter for Marty Rathbun, although that is a very funny <laughs> conjecture to me. Um, I've actually met Alonzo. I know who he is, uh, and he is a real person. And uh, I, I uh, you know, used to be friends with him and we had a falling out and he has since uh, decided to make it his mission to try to uh, ridicule and deride everything that I say and do uh, because it doesn't conform with his current crusade uh, against the anti-Scientology, ex-Scientology cult, which he insists uh, continually exists, even though it uh, is absolutely uh, delusional to think that. So... That's where he's coming from, and I don't agree with uh, pretty much everything the guy says, and uh, we don't really get along. So that's, uh, but he is a real person. He is not Marty Rathman. Okay, everybody, so go out and uh, enjoy your Christmas. Stop sitting around watching me. <laughs> go open your presents, drink your eggnog, and have a great time, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.